Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Father Craig Vosick, uh, who has newly joined the USCCB and is heading up its uh, efforts on the Eucharistic revival. Father Vosick, thanks for joining us. Andrew, I'm so glad to be with you. And uh, where are you coming to us from? Yeah, I was ordained in 2010 in the Diocese of Crookston. Well, I'm living in Washington, D.C. now, working at the USCCB, but I'm from Minnesota, northern Minnesota. When people ask, I actually say Canada, Minnesota, because (laughs) it's really, really up there. As a New Hampshire native, I can relate to being (laughs) quasi-Canada. Yeah. Now I'm working full-time for the National Eucharistic Revival. And our listeners might be hearing about the Eucharistic Revival for the first time. So for people who are unfamiliar, why is there this national effort underway? Yes, I mean, we could say that the the first Eucharistic Revival, but it was not a revival, it was a vivification, it was the first time, right? The, the Lord Jesus desired to give himself to us in the Holy Eucharist, we know that from the scriptures, but we're drawing particular attention to it in the United States of America now for a number of reasons. Uh, One would be a number of studies that have been done that suggest, I think they do more than suggest, that there has been a decline, a great decline in the way by which people understand their Catholic faith, the way by which they understand the provision of, of the Holy Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ truly present, substantially present in the Holy Eucharist. Um, and that for many reasons, but we, we wouldn't be able to talk about all of them in a, in a simple uh, podcast. It would have to be a podcast devoted <laughs> exclusively to it to get through all of it. But yeah. that's one thing. There's these studies that came out that show a decline in mass attendance, a decline in belief in the real presence. And even among those who believe, a decline in practice flowing from that belief. And so, uh, just uh, it's a time to breathe air into the tires to pump them back up. And so, that's the National Eucharistic Revival. That's one domain. I'd say another domain is uh, on the heels of COVID, where there was a time where people could not be together in churches for whatever reason. The uh, coming to the foreground of attending Mass by watching it live streamed. Some people sense that that's uh, good enough. Either the church thinks it's good enough for them or they think it's good enough uh, whether the church thinks it's good enough for them or not. <laughs> yeah, I think the first recent study that was kind of a wake-up call was a Pew Research Forum study in 2019 that showed something like 50% or more. I can't remember the specific numbers, but it was around 50% of Catholics did not believe that Jesus was really present in the Blessed Sacrament. And there have been subsequent studies outside of the Pew Research Forum that have confirmed those findings, which I think is what prompted this in large part. Because it's the greatest gift we can possibly be given, and most people don't even know that it's there. What does the Eucharistic revival look like then? Because I think when when people hear revival, they think like 19th century, typically Protestant uh, movements gathered in like big outdoor meeting tents and, you know, having charismatic experiences or something like that. Sure. The National Eucharistic Revival is both organized and grassroots. Organized in the sense that the bishops and the priests and diocesan staffs and parishes and apostolates and movements and organizations are all invited into it to see what role they might have at the service of God's work in our country. So it's organized that way, but it's also organic or grassroots in that any believing person who senses 
that the Lord is at work or wants to be at work in their life can respond right now. Even the person that is listening to this podcast can respond right now to God's Holy Spirit at work within them to bring them to a greater life or to bring them to life again if they have fallen away from life in Christ. So that's revival. That's not very concrete uh, to your question, but um, more concretely, from the organized standpoint, there are three years to the revival. The year that we're in right now, 2022 to June 2023, is called the diocesan year. The organized way by which that's happening is that the bishops of the country are talking and diocesan staffs are talking, praying, pondering how within their diocese or parishes in the future, can they breathe the fresh breath of God to revive Eucharistic life in, the, in those domains. I think it's hard in diocesan structures. Everything can tend to get when you're in administration, no matter what it is, it can feel bureaucratic. And this is sort of trying to liven things up to accomplish a very particular goal across a lot of different diocesan structures, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime that you have uh, an organization, there's going to be many different realms that you're trying to pay attention to. And so uh, we're simply suggesting that the gift of the Blessed Sacrament, the gift of the Holy Eucharist, the mystery of Christ in the Holy Mass, that that be, again, uh, jarred up to the top or mm-hmm. jarred down to the bottom, however you want to put that as a foundation or a capstone towards which everything is going. I mean, we, this is what we hold as a church is that the Eucharist is the source and summit. So it's both the bottom and the top. Right. It's the, it's the first and the last of all things. And so just to continue to, to lift that reality up in an organization uh, is always important. And then after the diocesan year ends in June of 2023. Yep. So then we'll launch the parish year. So after spending a year for diocese to ponder, now they should be equipped to be at the service of parishes. So we're calling this the parish year, uh, June Corpus Christi of 2023 into June of 2024. Uh, And the hope is that those deliberations, those ponderings, those prayers, those strategy sessions would now come to fruition through the through parish life. Um, Whatever that looks like might be parish missions, might be Eucharistic adoration, might be times of prayer and penance to be in right relationship with the Lord Jesus. It might be outreach to those who are disenfranchised or disaffiliated. It might be outreach to those who want to be at Mass but cannot be uh, due to whatever kind of circumstances they find themselves in. So, whatever the parish is and wherever the parish goes, and the parish should not be understood as the church building with the uh, pastoral center that's next to it and rectory as that, like that is the parish or something. That should not be the understanding. The parish is all of the territory that the parish is at the service of. And so that, that means like banks and supermarkets and uh, schools and it's everything, right? Uh, houses, everything within that, those parish bounds, that there would be a targeted and concerted effort to bring Eucharistic faith and life in a revived way in those places. So it extends to every, every single inch of the United States of America. So the parish year goes until June 2024. And then what happens then? Yeah, so then we go into the third year. So having a diocesan year and then a parish year, then we're going to have a, I guess if you could see what I'm doing, I'm moving my hands into two directions because there's two things that are happening there. One is that we're going to have a national gathering, uh, the National Eucharistic Congress, the 10th National Eucharistic Congress in the United States of America. We used to have these every five to 10 years. But for 70 plus years, we haven't had one. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to have that uh, 
coming back to uh, a practice of the church in America. The 10th National Eucharistic Congress, July 17th through 21st, 2024 in Indianapolis. The pilgrimage, a national pilgrimage, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's going to be really dynamic and awesome going from four different points towards Indianapolis. We're hoping for 80,000 plus people to attend live that Congress, which would be really a a transformative moment, a generational moment uh, in the life of the church in America. So that's the way that one finger is going. The other finger is going uh, because we have uh, the national gathering, but we also have what we're calling a missionary sending. And so that means that during that year, uh, we're also hoping that Eucharistic missionaries will be sent in an organic, individual, not individualistic, but individual way out, just to go out. We will gather, sure, at the Congress, but we want people to go out to really reach every inch of the United States of America to propose our Lord Jesus Christ present in the Holy Eucharist. And that's something that you see in Scripture, too, when Jesus, he gives that parable of the the wedding feast, where he talks about, you know, going out and inviting people in the highways and byways to this wedding feast. And that imagery of the wedding feast is something the church gives us in multiple places in scripture, um, not just in that parable or even the wedding at Cana, right? Right. Yeah. The the wedding feast, uh, I mean, we'd have to trace it back through the Old Testament and um, sort of these eschatological element, but uh, we don't have time for that either. But there is a sense in first century Israel that the Messiah, the king anointed one who is to come is going to bring about a, a new kingdom that's going to be, I mean, there, there's this misunderstanding in some domains that it's going to be uh, a militaristic national entity, but but there's this other domain of that there's no, that he's going to be a bridegroom figure. And Jesus is not afraid of the image of bridegroom. In fact, as John the Baptist announces Jesus, he speaks of himself as the friend of the bridegroom, and that when the bridegroom comes, the friend of the bridegroom lets him arise, and then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. So, that's a, a pregnant image in the in the life of John the Baptist and in the coming of Christ Jesus. That theme running through scripture, it tells us so much about what Jesus is in the Eucharist, that he is the marriage of God and man, and he is the means by which we are united with God, which is what love is all about. So the fact that scripture largely culminates in a wedding feast in the book of Revelation is really telling for that reason. And I don't think most people, uh, when they go to mass and they're hungry for love, without even necessarily realizing it, feel like that thing on the altar is the answer. So how does the wedding feast of the lamb in Revelation kind of help shed light on that? Yeah, so the the in in Revelation chapter 19, uh there's an angel who says curiously, blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the lamb. And you might recognize that not only from the Bible, but from the liturgy in Holy Mass. And actually, I would like to draw a couple of other scriptures, but from one moment in Holy Mass, which is my favorite to speak about, uh, my favorite to celebrate as a priest is to hold bread and to hold a chalice in my hand and to breathe the words that Christ has spoken. And as the Holy Spirit and the words of Christ are active. I'm watching bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Like I'm right there, you know, there's no more front seat than uh, where the priest is standing at the altar. Right. But 
a place where I really like to teach from is right before Holy Communion. Uh, the priest takes the consecrated host and lifts it up, presenting the host to the people. And uh, what's happening there is, is marvelous. It's really an explosion, even though it seems so routine to us. This is three scripture passages being slammed together. And that's all that they are is, is scripture. It's not like some sort of liturgical notes or some sort of uh, concoction of a fifth century author or something like that. So the first, as the priest is elevating this host, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. This is a direct quote from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist, who we already said is the one who is the friend of the bridegroom, who is ushering in the bridegroom. This is John the Baptist and pointing him out and saying, this is the Lamb of God, which is a different theme that we haven't already talked about um, that comes through the Old Testament. This is the Lamb of God, Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, the one who is coming. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, so that's John sort of taking all of the Old Testament prefigurements from like the Passover lamb in Exodus. Abraham and Isaac. and Abraham and Isaac and the, the manna uh, in the desert, this heavenly bread that comes down and sustaining. Um, and all these different elements that are, that are happening. John is pointing out saying, this is the one we've been waiting for. All right, so that's the first thing. Now the priest is taking the words of John the Baptist and saying, basically, being John the Baptist for the moment, saying, hey, everybody, anyone who will listen, here's the deal. This is right here. This is the Lamb of God. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, right? So that's the first part of that quote. And then the second part is not John the Baptist anymore. The priest is still speaking to the congregation. Uh, he's just taken the place of John the Baptist. Now he takes the place of the angel in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 19, where the angel says, blessed are those called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now in the Mass, we don't say wedding supper. I wish we, I kind of wish, I'm not trying to tell the church, but like, <laughs> uh, I, I wish it was the wedding supper, but blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. So, John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God, and then uh, the angel in Revelation saying, blessed are those called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so, that's what the priest says. He takes those two passages, so the, the fulfillment of the Lamb of the Old Testament, the one that we've been waiting for to be the Lamb of God to take away our sins, and this coming together of the bridal, bridegroom, bridal uh, covenant that this King Messiah bridegroom is going to share with the faithful, who is also known as a Lamb in the midst of all that. So that's what the priest says as he's holding the host. And then the faithful uh, respond directly from Matthew chapter 8, uh, which is where the centurion who wants Jesus to come and to heal a person in his house, right? He says, just do it, Jesus. I know that you can. And then Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. I'll come. But then the centurion is recognizing, like, I'm not worthy to have you come. Like, I want you to come and I know that you can do it, uh, but I don't think that I'm worthy to have you come. So just like say the word because I'm not worthy for you to come. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. All right. My servant will be healed in, the, in that in the biblical sense. So there's two dispositions going on for the centurion. One is, I know that you can do this for me. Yeah. That's like a statement of confidence, right? I am so confident that you can do this. And then at the same time, I'm totally humble because I'm not worthy. What the church is placing on the lips of the believers at that moment is to help the believer understand what their sentiment should be at that moment, which is, yeah. yes, the Lamb of God is here, and this is the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is really Jesus, and He really wants to come to you. And so you should be filled with confidence and filled with humility and awe. And so the faithful are kneeling, calling out, Lord, we're not worthy 
but you're going to make us worthy. And if you say the word, like we're going to be healed. And then you actually will come under our roof and we will be conjoined with you. And that's where this relational development is going to hit its climax. But we haven't even established that. We're just dealing with the biblical text at that moment, right? So I just love teaching from there because it it draws together all of the relationality through all of the biblical language for us to really understand what's going on in the moment. I love that the, I love that the bishops have gotten somebody who's so passionate talking about that to help lead up these efforts. <laughs> it's really cool to hear you uh, tie those tie those elements together to show people like because you know what on a weekly or a daily basis when we're at mass and we hear those words and we say those words we don't really think that much about them and we don't realize how much life is contained in them. So yeah, it really helps to hear you unpack it like that. And if people want to hear more about the uh, the significance of Jesus as the Lamb of God, I think a really good book is uh, Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper. That could be really helpful if people are wondering, like, why, why are we calling Jesus a lamb? Of course, there are a lot more books <laughs> that, that can expand on what you're saying, too. Do you have any, uh, do you have any recommendations along those lines? Uh, I love Scott Hahn, uh, so definitely uh, lay him before everybody. Anything from the St. Paul Biblical Center is great. I am very partial, personally, to Brant Petrie and anything that he puts out. Uh, and he has work on Jesus, the bridegroom, right? Uh, going through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And anything that Brant Petrie puts out is is incredibly dynamic, thorough, rich. Uh, same with Scott Hahn. Brant Petrie's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist is yeah. maybe my favorite book on, on the Eucharist. Yeah. Kind of on the note of making this more accessible for people. I don't know if people see the Eucharist as something that can really make a difference in their lives. And one thing we talk about on this podcast is how can we make a difference in people's marriages? Is there a way that deepened relationship with Jesus in the Eucharist can help somebody's marriage? The answer is definitely yes. <laughs> so there's a whole lot there, though. If, if a person doesn't sense that the Eucharistic host and chalice on the altar can do much for their own personal life, then they haven't made the connection between the Eucharistic host or consecrated chalice on the altar with what that really is. That's really Jesus. And uh, a person who says, well, Jesus can't make much of a difference in my life, they just don't know Jesus. A person who has not encountered Jesus probably doesn't think that Jesus can do much for their life. But a person who has encountered Jesus, like in a real living way, uh, if I come face to face with this man, I'm going to see that he has everything to do with my life, uh, with my mind, with my heart, with my desires, with my goals and ambitions, with my destiny, with uh, my relationships, with anything that goes on in my life. If I know who he is, and if I know who he is, um, but I haven't made the connection to who he is in the Eucharist, well, the Catholic Church teaches that it's simply the same man. (laughs) It's him. The God-man who is enthroned in heaven makes himself exactly present on the altar. It's his heavenly presence made present sacramentally. Sacramentally doesn't mean pretend. It doesn't mean fake. It doesn't mean other than. It means a different mode, sure, but it's the same presence of the heavenly king glorified at the right hand of the Father that's present on the altar. And so, uh, the glorified uh, king of the universe can definitely make a difference in my life. (laughs) But if I want to then make the next step of No, I do believe that Jesus can make a difference in my life, and I do believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, then can the Eucharistic presence of Jesus make a difference in my marriage? Yes. For what we've already said, it will change everything about my life. Absolutely. But uh, to zoom in, zoom in, zoom in on uh, one particular element, 
a person who recognizes that Jesus is making himself fully present in the Eucharist should then recognize the relationality that needs to take place there, that I am a subject here and, and that Christ Jesus is a subject there, and that in between subjects, and I'm sure you talk about this on, on here all the time, there's at least three things going on. There's my own subjective experience with myself. That's already a relationship in a way. My subjective uh, relationship with the other, and then the other's uh, relationship with me, and then the subject, the other subject's relationship with that other subject self. So there's there's a whole lot of different relational movements going on there. Uh, and so I I become more aware of who I am in myself by relating to Christ in the Eucharist. But it's, it's precisely here where I am sharing myself with him that I become more aware of my relational, emotional capacity, whatever that might look like. Yeah. And I'm able to give and I'm able to receive. And if I'm able to learn how to, to do this with Jesus, then it's going to help me do this with other people, that I share myself with him and that I receive from him, that I pay attention to him and that he is paying attention to me. Well, that's going to benefit any marriage because it can be the case. So let's go kind of backward to a place that's not that healthy religiously, which is a person who thinks that they are a subject and that Jesus and the Eucharist is an object. (laughs) Right. And the relationality is kind of only me uh, with regard to whatever I'm interfacing with. And that can happen in a marriage where I see the other, the spouse, as an object, and I am the acting subject. Well, then I'm not paying attention to sharing myself with the other, uh, nor am I going to be paying attention to receiving from the other what the other wants to share with me. It's only about what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get, or what I'm trying to do. What am I? What am I getting out of this? Yeah, it's selfish. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. What am I bringing, and what am I getting? Yeah. It's just one dimensional, and so. Any time that a person grows in their own ability to relate to another, that will benefit those other relationships, including the Eucharistic relationship. And if I grow in my relationship with Christ Jesus in the Eucharist, it's going to help me to grow in my own understanding of how to relate. And this is just one domain of how to relate. The fact that Christ Jesus is not only one who is relating with me, but he's also the one who causes my relationships to be better. He gives grace, right? His gracious presence actually uh, lifts my mind and it elevates my heart and it opens. It brings things from darkness to light and it brings things from coldness to warmth. He vivifies me. And so he's going to vivify my relationships because he's vivifying me and my capacity to be in relationship with others. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between the experience of kind of going through the motions at mass and sort of getting stagnant in marriage and I'm not really appreciating the the reality of the other person that's always there and always outside my kind of subjective desires. And yet at the same time, the fulfillment of those, <laughs> of those desires, it's a, it's a strange place to be in, but there's a way out. So moving forward, as we get closer to the national event and the missionary sending of the Eucharistic Revival, how can people nourish their own faith in the Eucharist and how can they help other people do so? The list would be endless. <laughs> uh, be Catholic. But, yeah. But I think one helpful resource that we've put together, we're calling it the Diocesan Playbook for Leaders, uh, which you can find on the website that we have, eucharisticrevival.org. And we'll link to that in the episode notes as well. Oh, great. So the website's great on its own, but you can find this playbook. It's a short PDF 
And it just goes on and on about different things of ways of growing in my personal counter for myself, the way by which I can grow in my own devotional, my parish, my, my diocese devotional life, how to deepen my formation, and then how to, how to go out being sent. So each one of those domains has like 10 to 15 different ideas attending events, talking about events, visiting the Blessed Sacrament, studying the Mass, and the list kind of goes on and on and on in all of those domains. Without trying to be exhaustive here, I I think I just simply point people to the website to find where the diocesan playbook is. Because it's limitless, the list, we've simply given some ideas, knowing that we're not exhaustive in that. To nourish our relationship with Jesus in the Eucharist, it's the same in a different mode, but the same way that I grow or foster a relationship with any person. With any person, I think about the person. I plan to be with the person. I am with the person. I cherish the person. I have fond memories after I'm with the person about that person. And I think about ways in which I can share my love of that person with others. You know, like I, you know, like you just do that with anything, not even any person that you love, but with anything that you love. Take any hobby. You know, it's like, oh, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm currently doing this. I'm thinking about how I like when I do this. I want to do this more. I want to tell more people about it, you know. Uh, so all of the steps that we would use on a, on a natural, level for fostering any kind of hobby or relationship are the same. They're the same. They're a different mode. But I should think about Jesus. I should ponder Jesus. I should read the scriptures. I should uh, go to a chapel where he is present in the tabernacle. I should visit him regularly, not just when mass is happening or adoration is happening, but he's always there in the tabernacle. He's always there for me. And he wants to be with me uh, and he wants me to be with him. And so go and visit him five minutes, one hour, whatever it is, go to mass, study the parts of the mass, talk to other people about the mass and the Eucharist, find people who love him and uh, be inspired by their love of him and then grow in love of him because of their love and then testify to other people about the love of it. Gosh, there's just no end. You know, there's so many books, so many resources, pamphlets, podcasts, videos, conferences. The National Congress is coming up in 2024. It's it's absolutely endless. If you begin to look, you'll find too much. Well, one thing that's been helpful for me is getting the Eucharistic Revival newsletter that is sort of distilled down a bunch of this stuff you know, just highlighted one thing at a time or this or that. Yeah, the newsletter is a weekly that we send out. It's fairly brief and it has different new engaging content every single week. A hundred percent of it is about the Eucharist. (laughs) That's at eucharisticrevival.org slash newsletter and sign up for the newsletter because we're sending out prayer partner initiatives. We're sending out Eucharistic missionary initiatives. We're sending out the Congress uh, information. We're sending out the pilgrimage information. We're sending out all sorts of things all the time, but the newsletter always has all of those things in it. And so it's the through which like the website's good, but the newsletter I think is even better because it's a, it's a weekly coming right to your inbox, sharing with you what's new, what's up, what's going on, what's, what's coming, what, where can you go for more information? It is just a directive tool. And we'll have a link to the main site, the leader's playbook and the newsletter in the episode notes. Well, I think we could talk a lot longer about the Eucharist, uh, and maybe we will, <laughs> because we're planning some more some more episodes to cover this uh, in the next, well, couple of years. But for now, we will leave it there. Father Craig Vosick, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm glad to be with you. I look forward to being with you again, if I can, because I want to talk about the revival all the time. <laughs> Me too. 
And National Marriage Week 2023 will also be tying into the Eucharistic Revival with its theme, Marriage, One Flesh Given and Received. National Marriage Week will be lasting from February 7th to February 14th, and you can find out more using the link in our episode notes. We are talking about The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's new, very, very autobiographical movie starring Gabriel LaBelle, Michelle Williams, and Paul Dano. Kara Bach, thanks for joining us. As always, thanks for having me. So this movie uh, just came out in theaters last year and uh, was, I thought was very good, even though nobody saw it. Um, but we have both seen it <laughs> and are ready to, uh, to talk about it. Kara, what are your initial thoughts? Uh, I agree. It was good. So I'll say I thought that it was going to be a little bit more about his journey as a filmmaker, which it certainly is some of that. But I think this is a pleasant surprise. It was definitely more of a family drama. Like it's much more about his family and his parents' divorce. And I think, you know, sort of woven in there for good measure is, you know, a lot about sort of like art and career and you know, family and like how we sort of navigate all of these pieces of ourselves. So I actually thought it was quite good. You know, it's not like Spielberg's best movie, but it was solid. Yeah. Solid showing. Good way to spend a couple hours. And it's it's available on streaming right now, uh, which I would certainly recommend. But Spielberg is pretty well known for making especially the relationship with his father a common theme in his movies. You see this a lot in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which we've talked about in a previous episode, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's a lot of daddy issues there, but it's a pretty well-known thing that he focuses on. But this is different because he's really just filming his own upbringing. It's about a young Jewish boy growing up in a family in 1950s America and falling in love with film while his parents' relationship is slowly dissolving. And, you know, going into this movie, I saw the trailer and I thought, A, wow, your name is on the poster three times, uh, Stephen. <laughs> Why is that necessary? <laughs> um, I don't think he designed the poster necessarily, but... And B, I thought, wow, this is looking like it's going to be a pretty straightforward, two-dimensional mom is an artist, dad's a scientist, and they're going to have a tug and war over the kid. And I was very relieved that there was more going on than just that. Yeah, I would agree. But you see this, especially in the first scene where his parents are taking him as a child to see his first movie, The Greatest Show on Earth, which won Best Picture in spite of how bad it looked, at least this clip of it looked <laughs> in the movie, because you see him as a kid watching the movie and falling in love with film, which would take hold for the rest of his life. And I think they're, they're doing something interesting in this scene, even though before this scene, you see his, his mom is trying to convince him because he's afraid to go in the theater. What is it? Movies or dreams that you get to, that you never forget. Movies or dreams that you never forget. Yeah. And his dad has taken the scientific approach because he's a, he's a computer scientist saying like, here's how they, they film things and here's how it's projected back and look at all these different technical elements. And the way that's filmed tells you a lot about how he's trying to navigate these relationships because his dad is standing on one side of him and then his mom turns him around towards her to face her and away from him and pretty overt opposition that's going to be more and more a part of his life. Well, it's also, it's interesting you mentioned that I hadn't quite like thought about it until you said it just now, but there's a lot of things in this movie that feel like they're explaining the craft, yeah. but also explaining his love of the craft. 
when he goes into the movie and actually sees the greatest show on earth, we see this very schlocky train scene where this car is on the railroad tracks and it gets destroyed by a train that's going by. But the way he films himself watching the movie and the way he shows the clip of the movie, I think is supposed to actually like teach us about why he cares about this. Almost like we, the, like the audience are like students here because he shows the front of the train heading for the car and the light on the front of the train. He like matches that and cuts it with the light of the projector behind the child character's head. Almost like the light on the train in relation to the car is analogous to the light of the projector and child Spielberg's like mind and his attention to this movie. So what he's saying there without any words is his experience of watching a movie is like getting hit by a train. And he wants you to start thinking like that so that you can appreciate what the character is going to come to appreciate as he learns about filmmaking, which I thought is like a really cool outward sign of an inner reality kind of way of using visual language. The scene where he figures out, basically, he's like filming this Western with his friends and he's watching back his sort of edit of it. And he's like, it's, it still looks fake. And then he kind of comes to realize that, like, you need it to look like the guns are actually shooting. And so it's kind of this interesting merge of, like, it's not just about the narrative. It's actually, like, film is this very visual storytelling. And, like, kind of to your point about this other movie that was his entree into the world of film that looked fake this is him realizing the like really good storytelling benefits from the visuals being correct or at least like doing its best to ape correctness and like how sort of enthralling it is when the technical supports the storytelling film is a place where art and science are not opposed yeah, yeah, <laughs> For definitely. once, because the, the, the rest of his <laughs> life, they are opposed. Well, I thought that was interesting, too, just you, know, you mentioning about the dad sort of giving him this sort of technical background. There's definitely a strong thread in this movie about, like, let's call it passion. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, on the one hand, you know, his dad seems like he's this rational computer science guy. But it becomes sort of clear throughout the movie that, like, his dad is obsessed with computers. Like... I think it's kind of it, it, like an interesting mirror to his mom, who's like the very typical artist who's like following her heart. And you know, she's sort of like set up as this free spirit yeah. who prioritizes passion. But it's like both of his parents are actually these extremely passionate people. And it makes a lot of sense that he in turn is extremely passionate about something and kind of funny that it's actually the marriage of the two types of passions, art and science. They're both like singularly focused on what they care about. And I think that's why mm. they fell in love in the first place is because like they saw that in each other in spite of it being focused in such a different way. They mm-hmm. still had that singularity in common or that, that passion in common. Speaking of visual uh, representations of, of, the <laughs> yeah. other, of other realities. <laughs> Can we talk about the like visual language of Catholicism, but like without... Catholicism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when when later in the movie, when he goes to high school and he meets a girl, she is boy crazy, 
about Jesus. She's she's boy crazy in general. I think we can safely say she yeah. uh, <laughs> she she loves JC and she <laughs> loves Sam. <laughs> so there there's a version of Christianity which we couldn't really locate whether or not it was Catholic. Well, it's definitely visually Catholic. I actually like laughed out loud when. <laughs> so first of all, you see this wall of like. Jesus images and then a bunch of like movie stars, I guess. Like matinee idol, heartthrob type. Yeah, it's cut like from magazines. Beat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But like all of the images of, of Christ are like the sacred heart of Jesus. They're like these extremely only a Catholic would have these kinds of paintings. Right. And then you turn around and there's this huge crucifix over her bed. I like, I actually l- laughed out loud. I was like, that's wild, but also. <laughs> Only a Catholic would have a crucifix. It's so hardcore. And yeah. then the rest of it is like not Catholic. Oh, they do the sign of the cross too at some point. I was like, I suppose Eastern Orthodox could have a crucifix too, but that's not an Eastern Orthodox one with the particular styling, whatever. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah definitely. That, she probably got that from a Catholic source. Yeah, for sure. But like her, I mean, it feels like it's just not written by somebody who is like fluent in Christianity because then like the rest of her language and posture is so. Just not what the like sort of Catholic language and understanding of our sort of visual, visceral I- experience with Christ is. Yeah, she she talks like an evangelical kind of. Yeah. And, and this is, to be fair, not a fair representation of evangelicalism either. <laughs> so yeah. we don't want to uh, adopt the movie's like unflattering portrayal of Catholicism or evangelicalism. But I think it, it is making a good critique of a tendency of some people, whether Catholic or Protestant, to sentimentalize religion. And she sort of folded it into discovering attraction to men. Mm. But she's talking about like how like you can just sort of feel yourself into faith and into belief, not just in terms of her own affection for this idea of Jesus, but in terms of trying to convert young Steven Spielberg, <laughs> who is Jewish. And she's just trying to say, like, you just got to, like, tell yourself that you believe and, like, she's going to breathe the spirit into him and all these things that sound sort of like a moralistic therapeutic deism on crack. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. There's always some nuggets of truth or else it would be, like, completely farcical. But yes, you know, faith is a gift and, like, something to be prayed for. But... I mean, certainly, I think in the Catholic tradition, it's not just uh, you wish for it. It's like we've got, you know, this idea that faith and reason live together and like you can it can be known through faculties other than simply the gift of faith. And I mean, I don't think that Spielberg is like making some kind of like huge commentary about Christianity. I think it's like way more of like a comedic trope. But it's so funny because this movie does so much to tell you about visual language and how important it is. And here it's like when I'm trying to like grasp at the idea of like the visual language of Christianity, what he comes up with is Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think this is really his primary point either, but it's a valid takeaway because of the, the way it's portrayed. Like you're saying, faith is a gift. You can't force God to do what you want simply by feeling strong feelings. Your sentiment that seems religious is not automatically valid because it is strongly felt. Like there's got to be more to it than that. See, also all of our prior discussions about sentimentalism. Exactly. Right, right. 
<laughs> yeah, th- this is unique because it's not in the context of uh, a relationship necessarily or a human relationship. It's in the context of a, a faith relationship between a human and God. Yeah. Another film that he makes informed by the central relationship of this movie is the edit of his mom on a camping trip being not physically unfaithful, but emotionally unfaithful to uh, her husband with a friend of the family played by Seth Rogen. That is a real plot point Mm -hmm. where he discovers that his mom is falling in love with another man by accident while he's looking at footage from a family camping trip. And he doesn't know what to do with it, and he doesn't know how to communicate about it with anybody. So he just takes the edit, shows it to his mom, and she's obviously devastated because she doesn't want to admit it to herself. He does it with visual language in the story, and also real-life Spielberg as the director of this movie portrays that experience in a way that's very cinematic, too, because he's got this little projector that's plugged into the outlet. And when she finishes watching that little home movie and she's devastated, she pulls the plug out of the wall, but you don't see the plug in the wall because the plug is obscured by the character of teenage Steven Spielberg. So all you see is like a plug traveling along the floor uh, in the background and in the foreground, Spielberg is blocking the end of it. So it sort of looks like it's leading to him, like an umbilical Mm. cord. That's being pulled out. Like the connection between mother and son is being uh, severed. Mm -hmm. Again, no words there. He just shows it and moves on to the next part of the scene. But that was very affecting to me anyway. Yeah, like that is the rupture point. It's interesting, too, because I guess we can get into kind of the family dynamics now. But there's so much of this movie that's clearly about the family dynamics and about his relationship with his mother and I guess to a, it feels like a, to a lesser extent to his father. Certainly it's about both of them. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, up until this point, like obviously his mom and him are the sort of artists in the family. She's encouraging his filmmaking and the dad is more or less like, Hey, you know, this is just a hobby kind of poo pooing a lot of it. And I feel it was interesting because it's you get the sense that he's closer to his mom and then he goes through the film from it's basically like a family camping trip that he had been filming and his his mom's mom had recently passed away. And so the dad comes to him and asks him to make an edit of the film to try and cheer his mom up. Yeah. It's funny because he filmed it and yet he didn't understand what he was filming until he goes to edit it and is Mm. actually seeing it and like kind of putting the narrative together and having to make choices about what he's going to show and not show to his family. And I feel like that is sort of like simmering in the background for a little while. It's like, oh my gosh, I've got this realization that my mom is not who I thought she was. And he makes two versions of it. He makes the, mm-hmm. the normal one, which he shows to the whole family and everyone likes it. And then he makes the, that other one where it's just about the mom and the friend of the family. And he only shows it to the mom. Yeah. And it's interesting because it comes up later, too. It's kind of like his, his little secret that he yeah. knows what's going on. And so when I think it's that his mom basically is like, what's going on? Like, why have you, why are you being so mean to me? Cause then he starts being yeah, pretty kind of nasty to her and he shows her the film. And it is this like, 
I'm officially changing our relationship. Up until now, I was kind of like, I had this secret. It was my own burden and I was being just like a nasty teenager. And like now we are both aware that like the dynamic between us is changed and like the relationship has been ruptured. Yeah. And you're still my mother, but you're a flawed human being also. Yeah. And it was interesting because I think at least my understanding of Spielberg's real parents is that his dad was often very absent and that's like not really shown in this movie as much. Yeah. Which I think is kind of interesting, like knowing that about his parents and then like so many things in this movie are based in reality. Like Mm -hmm. apparently that whole thing we just described about the family movie and him like doing this cut and realizing that his mom was being unfaithful. (laughs) Like that's actually how he figured it out is my understanding. Like according to some interviews that Spielberg has done. So it's interesting that like that part of it's real, but in the movie he seems to put like his dad in a much better light than in reality. Cause my understanding is that in reality, his dad was actually very absent, like put his career First, above everything, he was kind of a workaholic. Hmm. And I think the movie sort of interestingly, like, exonerates his dad in this. I don't know. How do you... Did you feel like it did? I think so. But for different reasons. The the workaholic thing, you might be right about. I, I don't know about that. But as far as, like, when, you know, Spielberg's process of discovery in real life about his parents' relationship, my understanding of it was when it happened his father let the kids believe that it was his fault. He took the blame. Until years and years later, well into Spielberg's film- filmmaking career into the 80s, and it might have been because of him looking at old home movies mm. that he made, but it wasn't until then that he discovered that this was the real reason why his parents split up and his father mm. had actually been shielding his mother from blame. So, like, when he makes Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and in that movie, the father leaves the kids and joins the aliens, that's the real life Spielberg who thinks that his father caused their family to split up. And oh, interesting. now after having had kids himself, Spielberg says, I wouldn't have ended Close Encounters that way. I would not have had the father leaving the kids. Yes, that, that discovery of why the relationship broke up did happen. I don't know if it happened at that point mm-hmm. in high school. So, Got it. You know, when, when the split was happening, I'm not sure if high school Spielberg knew why it was happening. That's, that's, to my knowledge, the only part of this movie that is not based in reality, at least as far as I understand it. Again, <laughs> I could be wrong. I'm sure there's like details, yeah, like little stuff that you merge together. Right. And, and when you get into the details of people's real life relationships, like the, the public version of it is never totally accurate anyway. So, you know, yeah. you always have to have to qualify everything you're saying with, you know, as far as the, you know, the details are available. We don't want to get too like tabloidy here. Yeah, totally. Except in, in as much as the movie invites us to. <laughs> <laughs> but I think still it's it's sort of like an interesting reflection on just like his choice in making the movie. Just like it feels a little bit like he's has this whole career of, you know, missing dads. Yeah. And in a way he's kind of, I don't want to say writing the wrong. It's not, it wasn't like an injustice, but it does seem to be a way for him to at least acknowledge that it wasn't just his dad who was gone. Yeah. There were, you know, it was much more complicated than that. You're right. The version of his dad in this movie turns out to be a great example of masculinity, mm. which, you know, maybe we can get into a little bit later, but was a surprise to me, uh, having seen Paul Dano, the actor in other roles, 
What what movie are you referencing that he was like not a not a good influence? There will be blood. Yeah, there will be blood. Little Miss Sunshine. He plays the Riddler in Batman. Uh, the new Batman. Really? <laughs> oh, Ruby Sparks. Yeah, he plays a screen. Wow. Yeah, he plays a writer in Ruby Sparks, where he invents a girlfriend who becomes real, but he still controls her by writing. What range? Just mentioning that, like Paul Dano being a good example of masculinity. I thought it was very interesting, kind of early on in the movie. There's a scene where Mitzi and Bert. Bert, yeah. Mitzi and Bert are his parents' names in the movie. So yeah, there's a scene where, where Mitzi and Bert, the parents, are talking about her love of piano and how she was like this great pianist. And Bert offers to her, he's like, you know, why don't you get some childcare and like go, you know, you've been invited to do this radio show, like you should do that. Very supportive of his wife's career. Yeah. For a it, 1950s couple. Yeah, extremely, like shockingly so. Which I think it just felt like a very intentional choice, but it was very interesting too that Mitzi is sort of poo poos it, like, no, 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 I don't have time. Like, oh, we can't afford that. And I just thought it was kind of this interesting, like, he doesn't really get into it, but it is sort of like an interesting nod about the fact that, like, we are whole people. We aren't just parents. We aren't just husbands and wives. We aren't, and on the flip side, like, we aren't just working automatons like we obviously passion we've talked about this already being like a big theme in the movie but i thought that was really interesting almost like an admission that part of this was maybe his mom's i don't want to say his mom's fault but like certainly her own choice in like not nurturing the things that would have like made her feel more alive and perhaps part of why she may have been interested in an affair that kind of like gives her that sense of thrill and you know that like fulfillment and these things that like maybe she probably should have been getting somewhere else because we aren't just going to be fulfilled by being a parent and being a spouse like frankly that's really hard work yeah not nothing is going to be infinitely fulfilling yeah except definitely. god <laughs> but no to your, to your question earlier i do think he's making his dad look pretty good in this movie he doesn't force his interests on his kids. Like he tries to explain, you know, how cool science is. But once they don't get it, he sort of says, okay, well, I tried and they're not going to get it. So I'm not going to force it any anymore. Also, the way he, at the end of the movie, they flash forward a little bit after high school and Steven is sort of, is trying to make it in Hollywood and not succeeding. And he's having an anxiety attack and his dad knows exactly what to do. He doesn't panic. He knows, knows how to help because uh, he paid attention to when his mother had the same sort of anxiety attack and he like helps out in a very steady way. And he's just not a fun guy, but he's a good, he's a good man, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I thought was, it was a really neat portrayal of masculinity. And this isn't the only, this isn't the only area where the movie addresses masculinity either. Spielberg is trying to figure out how to be a man. And there are two other scenes where he interacts with potential other models of masculinity, which are not as healthy. <laughs> so he makes this, you know, he's getting bullied in, in this new high school in California by this kind of jock ace type and his even more anti-Semitic like sidekick guy. It's funny how he goes about getting his, you know, he tries to get revenge on him. It doesn't work. And the school asks him to make a, a film about senior skip day at the beach. And he decides to go in a different direction with it. And he edits it to make it look to lionize the bully guy and to make him into this kind of golden god figure. 
And what ends up happening is he kind of kills him with kindness because the bully takes him aside afterwards and is like shattered <laughs> psychologically because he has been made to look too good in front of everybody. Um, and he's like been made to reckon for the first time with himself about like what kind of person he wants to be and like what strength is and all these like really different difficult things from this like seemingly shallow beach movie that Spielberg made. And I think this is supposed to be a meditation on the leading man and the hero and especially Indiana Jones. Mm. Where he's sort of figuring out, how do I put this very powerful like idea on screen in a way that still reckons with weakness, right? Because like growing up watching movies, he had very simple examples of masculinity on film. The Greatest Show on Earth stars Charlton Heston, and you see a lot of different like posters of different John Wayne movies. Like these are two figures who are about as, or at least have a reputation for being about as simple uh, models of masculinity as we have in popular culture. Mm -hmm. And I think he's sort of interrogating that, saying there is really no such thing as the the kind of classic leading man. But there's something to it, because once you reckon with weakness, what happens? The even more anti-Semitic sidekick comes in to the scene, tries to beat up Spielberg, but the bully defends Spielberg suddenly. Because he has been made aware of this weakness, and now he wants to be a good person. He wants to be a good man and not just a strong man. So he uses his strength to defend Spielberg. And that shot of him after he punches out the sidekick, um, where he sort of like cracks his neck. I don't, know, I don't know what you call it, but people in movies do it when they want to look cool. Menacing, yeah. <laughs> I felt like, oh, that's a hero. That's Indiana Jones. And Indiana Jones is notable because he does get punched. He does get knocked down. He does bleed. You know, he's not he's not a total square jaw John Wayne type. He's also like an academic and, and he's, yeah, yeah, he's like he's more of that that like scout y kind of thing where it's like he's an adventurer, but he's a little bit of a nerd and yeah, there's like some humanity to him. Which is why he's such a compelling character. Yeah. The hero with humanity is is an interesting thing for him to figure out in this scene with the bully. Because mm -hmm. he could have just said no heroes. You know, <laughs> heroes are bad, masculinity's bad all altogether. But, he, you know, he doesn't. He comes away with a more nuanced kind of perspective on it. Yeah. It's also interesting because there's also a bit of a meta narrative about how important narratives are, like mm -hmm. to yourself and to others. Yeah. And it is like the guy seeing himself as better than what he is that inspires him to change. And even though he like knows that he's not that guy, it gives him some hope that like he could be that guy and to like inspire the the kind of change that would be healthy and then the last formative example of masculinity is uh basically the last scene in the movie where he meets one of his heroes director john ford who if you look at his imdb page he's on a ton of movies a lot of westerns that uh, are instrumental in the in the history of film and you know he's sort of this little timid you know, kid who doesn't know nothing and the director is going to show him what's what. Um, and he gives him five minutes and he he's played. It's an amazing cameo. I didn't know who it was because he's covered up by like the eye patch and the, the hat until he opened his mouth. He's played by a real life director, David Lynch, who is I don't think he has a lot in common with Spielberg <laughs> creatively. But it was funny. It was really funny that he Ooh. got him in here. What was David Lynch? What did he direct again? Uh, like Twin Peaks, uh, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, none of which I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, David Lynch plays John Ford. I mean, he directed John Wayne and is largely responsible for that image of the hero. 
but still is able to teach something to Spielberg about uniting art and science. Here's a rule about how to make an image, you know, how to film the horizon, both creatively oriented and about, about perspective, but it's also scientific, like if A, then B, if B, then C. So yeah, I thought that was, that was a neat way to wrap it up that I did not expect because it was so comical. Yeah, I just loved that it's like you get five minutes and he spends the first two of them very excruciatingly slowly lighting a cigar. <laughs> yeah. And Spielberg is just sort of frozen because he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, it's so good. I feel like it's not just like art and science. It's also he's asking like what's going on in the picture. And it's like there's the sort of like the subject of what's happening. But there's also the choices that you make as a director. Yeah. And he's like, the choice that makes this interesting is where the camera is in both of the, you know, and he does it again with another, with another image. And it is kind of that, like, those choices are the things that make film compelling. It's not just like the story of what's happening. Yeah. Because he, he asks Spielberg to describe the paintings in his office. And Spielberg says, oh, it's a couple of cowboys on horses. And he's like, no, no, no. Where's the horizon? (laughs) And it takes him a couple of tries (laughs) to get where he's going with that. Right. Because you could just take pictures of a couple people on horseback and you wouldn't think about where the horizon is. But certainly like directors and photographers do. It adds the like the interest. Yeah. They have to make those choices. If the horizon is at the bottom, it's interesting. If the horizon is at the top, it's interesting. If the horizon is in the middle, it's boring as <laughs> Now, good luck to you. I mean, honestly, if only all of my like meetings asking for advice were so direct <laughs> and insightful. Isn't art beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> Any parting thoughts? No, that was it. It was the hor- the horizon bit. That's my those were parting shots. <laughs> well, we can look out onto the horizon of 2023. Ooh, Thanks nice. for the suggestion of uh, of faithfulness. Nice segue. <laughs> Thank you. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>